Hi, everyone. Welcome to the second of three Make It and Sell It podcast episodes about the home production startup process. Last week, I talked about the government permissions and paperwork necessary to start up a new business. Next week, I will reveal the first products that I will be launching and how I decided on these items. This episode is about everything in between, the nuts and bolts of preparing your production business. Full disclosure, this episode is not for everyone. It is not the story of someone who created a product in her basement a few years ago and has gone on to generate huge sales and national acclaim. It's not the story about progressing from home production to commercial production, co-packing, or storefronts. I'm not there yet. It's not even a story about my larger dream or vision. I've talked about that in other episodes, and we'll say more about that next week. Instead, this episode is about all the things I've done to get my business and home ready for production and sales. Specifically, I talk about preparing my home, as well as purchasing equipment and supplies. I'm not suggesting that these topics are boring. Far from it. I think the preparation process has been incredibly exciting. If you haven't figured it out by now, I love getting down into the weeds. I love figuring out how to make something happen and then reflect and tweak it so that it is better and better over time. That's what this episode is about. If you are a person thinking about home-based production or have started down this road already, this really is an episode for you. Home-based producers have to do it all. You have to have the mental flexibility and discipline to think through the details in addition to the higher level vision. So sit back, put your green eye shades on, and get ready for some practical preparation pointers. Hi everyone, this is Corey Hyman, host of the Make It and Sell It podcast. This is a show about entrepreneurs who develop new products and then produce, sell, and distribute these products themselves. This field is wide open and can be a fantastic opportunity for anyone who has the passion, skills, and persistence to succeed. Why do people do it? How do they do it? What can we learn from their experiences? Stay tuned to find out if this career path may be right for you. In the cooking world, there's a wonderful French phrase that I use a lot, mise en place. It means everything in its place. The idea is that the more preparation that can be done ahead of time, the better the product will turn out. Think about it. When you make a batch of cookies, are you the kind of person who reads the entire recipe ahead of time? Do you get all the ingredients out at once? Do you weigh out the dry ingredients and set them in a series of small bowls, oil, or line your cooking trays and set them aside, preheat the oven? Or are you the kind of person who reads each recipe instruction once, gets out the specific ingredients related to that step, and completes each individual step before figuring out what happens next? For the moment, let's call the first kind of person the organizer and the second kind of person the responder. My challenge to you organizers out there, try becoming a responder when you do your next project. What did it feel like? How successful were you? Similarly, for you responders out there, try becoming an organizer for your next project. How was that experience? I realize that we all have our own styles in our personal lives. Some of us are organizers and others are responders but I would argue without hesitation that organizing and getting everything in its place is an essential component of success in a business. Still not convinced? Maybe you did find success as a responder with one batch of cookies. Now try five batches in a row. How about 10? The problem with always being in the mode of responding is that it is really difficult to become more efficient. You get in a rut and can only go so far. You get yourself stuck. 
How frustrating is it to be midway through a cookie recipe and realize that you don't have a key ingredient such as baking soda in the house? On the flip side, organizing ahead of time gives you time to think and improve your process. What if you line the mixing bowls one way on the counter versus another? What if, among your three batches of batter, you add mint extract instead of vanilla extract? Organizing ahead of time can therefore give you the perspective and headspace to reflect on what you're doing and conduct these kinds of mini-experiments. So organizing does not only improve the efficiency of what you're doing, but it can help make you a better product. Even if it takes more time to organize, you would be surprised how much more efficient you can be in the long run, especially as you grow and make more product over time. Still not convinced? Talk to home-based producers and ask them. I would be very surprised if any successful producer recommends the responder instead of the organizer path. In the meantime, listen on and know that mise en place is at the core of how I approach my preparation process. When I started to think about home-based production, I knew that a big part of the process was to prepare my home. For context, my primary home is in Maryland. That's where I live with my wife and son. At the same time, I've been spending much of my time these past few years in a townhouse in Pennsylvania where my restaurants are. This serves as a place to stay so that I can visit the restaurants, work on administrative issues, and store restaurant items. I tend to work four or five days here each week and then return to Maryland to visit my wife and son. The downstairs of the Pennsylvania townhouse includes a living room, dining room, kitchen, and powder room for a total of about 520 square feet. The dining room doubles as a home office. I work at the table, have filing cabinets for restaurant paperwork, and have set up shelving for a printer and office supplies. Much of the upstairs closet space is dedicated to restaurant smallwares, uniforms, and paper products. Although the space is not huge, I'm finding it perfectly adequate to start a home-based production business. It is spacious enough, easy enough to clean and organize, and we don't have small children or pets. The latter two are not a deal-breaker, Of course, people with small children or pets can start home production businesses. However, particularly when it comes to food, there are strict rules about limited access to the production and packaging areas of a business when these activities are taking place. In preparation for production and the food inspector who came to visit the townhouse, I did a deep clean of the house top to bottom. This included detailed cleaning of all living spaces, bathrooms, floors, walls, ceilings, lights, and fans. For the most part, I was able to do this deep clean with a water steamer and eco-friendly cleaning products. However, I did use stronger chemicals for the sanitizing of bathrooms, kitchen countertops, and other surfaces. I also did a thorough cleaning of all kitchen appliances, including the refrigerator freezer, oven and stovetop, microwave oven, even though I'm not working on products that require the microwave, and dishwasher. Given that many of my initial products will be food products, I also set up my kitchen and bathroom to follow the Federal Food and Drug Administration guidelines. This includes hand sinks with single-use towel holders, antibacterial soap dispensers, hand-washing signs, even though I'm the only employee right now, and trash cans. I checked the temperature of my refrigerator and freezer and made sure that I could get hot water for my tap of at least 110 degrees Fahrenheit within a minute, all required for food-producing facilities. Last, I tripled the amount of shelving in the dining room and living room to accommodate new small appliances, smallwares, tools, other supplies, and ingredients that don't require refrigeration. These are the five-level plastic shelves that you can get online or at any big box store. I like these a lot because they are durable, mobile, and allow good circulation. With all the new horizontal space available, I was able to make a plan for storage. 
First, I needed to figure out how to separate personal products from production products. I decided to keep all the cabinet space in the kitchen for personal use, all the new shelving in the dining room for dry food production and storage, and all the new shelving in the living room for non-food production. And although I have only one refrigerator freezer in the townhouse, I was able to create separate shelves for personal items and sales items. That seemed to be acceptable to the inspector. I even went as far as to create laminated signs to remind myself and the inspector about this segregation. The next step was to create separate space for food-related equipment, supplies, and ingredients that would remain allergen-free. Food-based allergens are a huge and growing concern. It's imperative to be clear about allergens in food products as well as the facilities in which foods with food-based allergens are made. Last, it is essential to be hypervigilant to avoid cross-contamination in production and storage processes so that allergens from one product are not inadvertently exposed to another product. This requires separate shelving and storage as well as production schedules and cleaning regimens. It is equally important to keep separate spaces for production and cleaning processes. For example, while sanitizing mixtures are imperative for cleaning purposes, you don't want these chemicals in your food. This is why I have placed cleaning supplies in separate shelving units far away from food shelves. And although I now have a bevy of cleaning supplies, both tools and compounds, these do not fill a complete shelving unit. So, I use the bottom three shelves of a unit for cleaning supplies and the top two for packaging supplies. Note that it is important to be mindful of vertical positioning when organizing for production. You want to make sure that if there is ever a risk of something higher up dripping or leaking, that it does not cause problems for the items below. So, you would never want to organize cleaning supplies above food or packaging. Similarly, you would never want to place foods with common allergens above foods that are allergen-free. See, I told you we were going to get into the weeds. One last consideration for organizing space. Don't forget about post-production. It's easy to get carried away in planning for pre-production and making sure that you have enough space for organizing your equipment, ingredients, and supplies. However, remember that you will also need space for post-production storage. This could include the time to let baked goods cool off or cure, in the case of shaved soap, it can take weeks for new soaps to cure and be ready for use. In the case of homemade vanilla that I'm planning, it will take 6 to 24 months of resting before it is ready for sale, in a dark space no less. You will also need post-production space to organize your packaging and holding before taking your products to market or to your shipper. Fortunately, I remembered the need for post-production space and built that into my organizing plan. With my space set up, I was able to start preparing the equipment, supplies, and ingredients for production. The good news for me, and I'm sure is possibly the case for other home-based producers, is that I already have a fair number of these items in my home. I already have an oven, stovetop, food processor, electric mixer, hand mixer, blender, digital scale, pots, pans, baking trays, funnels, mixing bowls, cutting boards, measuring cups and spoons, oven mitts, and cleaning supplies. I also had a fair number of food ingredients for research and development. It was therefore easy enough to figure out which of these products I needed for business production and segregate these items on the new dining room and living room shelves. Organizing items on shelves is not difficult, but I would advise having at least some organizing plan before you start. I was not particularly organized in this process and found myself moving multiple items from one place to another before I was comfortable with the final layout. It was also helpful to have a supply of storage bins to organize small items, as well as pest-resistant containers with lids to store raw ingredients. Nearby dollar stores can be a great source for these kinds of supplies. 
Given that I will be using a variety of spices in my food products, I also found it useful to reorganize these into a common set of storage containers instead of having a menagerie of bottles and bags. If you choose to do this, though, remember that you will need to label your containers clearly and include expiration dates. I used a label maker to label all my new spice containers and small dot stickers to write expiry dates. For previous comments, I paid close attention to separate cleaning items to be far away from other production items, and among production items, separate the small wares that I would be using for items that will be free from major allergens from those that will include at least one of the eight major food allergen groups. I even went as far as attaching red zip ties to the mixing bowls, measuring cups and spoons, knives, funnels, and baking trays that I will be using for allergen-free food to remind myself to keep these in special places. I also reserved a shelving unit for business supplies. This includes everything that you would find in an office supply cabinet, including paper, envelopes, stapler, hole puncher, file folders, files, tape dispensers, rulers, paper clips, binder clips, pens, paper cutter, and more. This shelving unit also houses my printer and my new label printer. Yes, new label printer. Although I had much of what I needed to start production and packaging, I did need to make some new purchases to get started. The biggest investment was in a thermal label printer. This will allow me to print the kinds of 4x6-inch labels that are required for shipping on platforms such as Amazon and Etsy. I purchased a used crockpot from a local thrift store and an infrared thermometer to help with the saponification process and making shave soap, PVC tubing for setting and curing the soap, as well as a wire slicer to cut the shave soap when ready. I also purchased a heat sealer and heat gun for packaging, as well as a lab stand that will make it easier to hold my funnels and pour my spices into containers. Last but not least, I purchased some new measuring devices. This included new thermometers for the oven, refrigerator, and freezer to make sure that items are baking and stored at the correct temperatures, as well as an inexpensive but powerful digital scale that allows me to weigh items down to a hundredth of a gram. The scale is essential during my research and development as I make small batches of goods for testing and comparison. In terms of small wares and supplies, a few trips to the dollar store, big box chain store, and Amazon gave me everything I needed. These included new measuring cups and spoons, more mixing bowls, spatulas, whisks, containers, and plasticware. I also purchased vinyl gloves for handling food, as well as new cleaning tools, formulas, and test strips to keep my production and packaging spaces as safe as possible. The last two categories of products are probably the ones in which I invested the most time. These are ingredients and packaging supplies. It's not as though these items are hard to find. All are quite accessible in local stores and online. That is not what caused me to spend so much time thinking about these items. It is because ingredients and packaging will become my biggest ongoing costs and can mean the difference between business success and failure. For example, it is cost prohibitive to buy almond flour in a single pound bag. It is way too expensive to use ingredients in small quantities from the grocery store and will make it impossible to sell finished products at a profit. However, it could also be a problem to buy a 50-pound block of butter, as my friends at Simply Ghee do, even if this would be the most cost-conscious purchase on a per-unit basis. The reason is that I don't know yet what my demand will be, and there is a huge risk that a product bought in a huge supply would expire before I could use it. So the process of buying ingredients initially has felt like a mix between art and science. 
The art part is thinking about how large the demand will be so that I can have enough product on hand, but not too much money invested or having products expire. And then the science part is finding the most cost-effective source of high-quality ingredients for the amount of product that I decide on. As a data geek, the cost-effectiveness analysis is where I feel most comfortable. I've therefore created a spreadsheet that identifies all the ingredients that I need initially and the most inexpensive source for high-quality ingredients I can find from a reputable supplier. I then update the spreadsheet anytime I find a better source. Since my product list is quite spice-heavy, I've also itemized 90 spices and spice blends as part of the list. I know that this activity may sound quite tedious, but I genuinely believe that the initial and ongoing time investment will save a huge amount of money in the long run. The last category of purchases that I would like to discuss is packaging. This is also extremely important as packaging can have huge consequences for businesses' costs, identity, and product integrity. On the one hand, it is important to have packaging that stands out, creates a wow factor, and suggests a level of sophistication that justifies a premium price. On the other hand, packaging costs can also get out of hand and make the required sales price too high to be profitable or practical. It therefore took surprisingly long to come up with initial packaging for the first set of products. This included multiple trips to the stores to see how similar products were packaged, exploratory sourcing of materials, decisions about whether to buy packaging from a foreign or domestic source, all of which has turned out to be domestic so far, and the testing of many samples for cost, appeal, size, and practicality. I also spent time thinking about product and packaging weight so I could maximize the amount of product and packaging I could use, based on the expected user demand, within a band of shipping costs. Remember, too, the packaging has to include both the material that identifies and protects the product and the materials that allow you to transport and ship, what I would call the internal and external packaging. In all honesty, I found some really fun internal packaging that would have allowed my products to pop and generate a lot of buzz. Unfortunately, though, these were just too expensive or would have made shipping too expensive. In the end, I am satisfied with what I decided for initial packaging, at least in the beginning. A number of vendors sell packaging products, both domestically and internationally. However, most products have to be bought in bulk, so this can be a very expensive investment. The good news is that the big companies are happy to send samples of their products so you can see which ones work best for you before you make this investment. As one example, I had decided on a particular size and shape of bag for a few of my products. Two companies sold the bags, one for substantially less than the other. This was a no-brainer, right? Well, I didn't want to be too hasty, so I decided to test both. In fact, I set my 10-year-old on a mission for destruction, on which he was only too happy to oblige. We filled the bags from the two companies with the same amount of product, and then my son tossed the bags, dropped them, and even stomped on them. It was the stomping that did it. One of the bags blew a hole in its gusseted bottom. On investigation, we realized that this was because the bag's base was made of a flimsier material than the rest of the bag. Unfortunately, this was the less expensive bag. Even though the cost savings would have been substantial, the risk of a bag falling apart in shipping was just too big a risk. I took a pass. Wow, that's a lot. I warned you I would be getting into the weeds. That you've stuck it out to this point in the episode says a lot about you. You really must be interested in home-based production. That is probably enough for today, though. I will save the rest of the discussion about the startup process for next week, when I will discuss research and development, branding, e-commerce, and the big reveal about the launch of my first 
products. Thanks for listening today. This has been the Make It and Sell It podcast with Corey Hyman. Please subscribe, let us know what you think, and stay tuned for future episodes.